chapter 7. The well-known Romans chapter 7. This morning, Lord willing, my intent is to simply look at verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now think about this. Do you not know, brothers or brethren? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's a pretty straightforward statement, right? Well, if the police are running some sting operation over here on the east side and they're, they're watching and they see somebody that's clearly a crack dealer, um, you know, they can put a warrant out for his arrest, but if before they arrest him, somebody comes along and puts a bullet in his head and drops him dead, you know what? That warrant doesn't matter anymore, does it? The law is not binding anymore if you're dead. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, Paul doesn't give us the, the crack illustration. He gives us the married woman illustration. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise. That's an important word because what Paul's doing is he's likening that whole thing with the woman and the dead husband and her ability now to remarry, he's likening that to something in the Christian life. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Did everybody follow that perfectly? You know all that that means? Listen, there's an old saying that goes, you can't see the forest for the trees. When you say that to somebody, Have you ever heard anybody say that? When you say that to somebody, what you mean is they're so involved with the details of something, they forget or fail to realize the importance of a thing as a whole. You can get so caught up with one little aspect that you miss the big picture. And it's easy. Listen. It's easy is the AC off? Okay. It feels like it's feels like it's getting warm. But you know, folks, there think with me, there is a tendency for people to do this in the book of Romans. There really is. You know, you guys can quote verses from Romans. The folks out there in, in uh, religious land across this country often refer to the Roman road. 
And what do they do? They quote several verses. Which ones do they quote? Romans 6.23. Romans 3.23. Which other ones? 116.7. And, and what happens is, we can fall into, into the same thing. How is that? Well, because, you know what? We begin to study something topically. Like, we begin to look at this, this idea of election. So we go to Romans 9. Or, you know, we think about... Well, there's, there's a number of things. How many people get into Romans chapter 6 and the first part there and they want to discuss and debate baptism? But that isn't even... You see what happens if you just take a single text or a single thought out of the book of Romans, you can end up missing the big picture. And I'll tell you this, you can end up misinterpreting those things when you miss the broader context. And so, I said, why do I say all that? Well, simply for this reason. We have been looking over the last weeks and months at the book of Romans. My objective is not to deal with every single word, nor every single verse, but to get the overall flow of the book. Because if we have that, then when you go to your little verses, like for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, you'll realize the context in which that's put. And when you realize context, folks, I mean, when you realize the whole overall flow, it comes alive. And one of the... One of the matters that we need to realize here is when we study Romans chapter 7, it's not an island to itself. A whole lot of other material went before it. Folks, you don't get to 7 unless you start at 1. You know, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 9, they, Romans 5, well, Romans is a book. But people, you know, the, these chapters of, are of huge importance and people can go there but remember, folks, we go all the way back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which Brother Charles mentioned, and Paul right there sets down his major thesis for this whole book. Remember what he said? I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Paul, why aren't you ashamed of the Gospel? Because in it, in that message, there is something revealed. Do you remember what it is? The righteousness of God. Now, that is where Paul has been flowing the whole time. When I say righteousness of God, I am not talking about God's personal righteousness. I am not talking about that attribute of righteousness that belongs to God. Because when you go over to Romans 3, what you find there is that in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about a righteousness that is of God's making. It's of God's design. It's of God's approval for the believer. That's what the book of Romans is about. It's about God Producing a righteousness for believers. Paul just... And, and, well, okay, what happens? Here he says, this is it. Paul's speaking gospel here. This is the good news. It's the best news of all news. A message that actually reveals the way man can be made right with God. That's what it's about. It reveals the righteousness of God that is for a believer. Brethren, that's where he starts. And everything flows out of describing this. And so what does he do? Well, there's a righteousness that's being provided for man. So the first thing he needs to show us is that every single man upon the face of this earth lacks this righteousness. And if they're going to get right with God, they better have it. And he shows us in meticulous detail exactly how absolutely and universally ungodly this world is. There is none righteous, folks. 
All of us are condemned under sin. All of us are held accountable. All of us have our mouths shut. All of us are under sin. All of us. There's not one that does good. From Romans 1.18 all the way through 3.21, you find that the wrath of God is revealed. And why is it revealed? It's revealed because men suppress truth. Men are wicked. Men don't seek God. Men are wicked in the mouth. They're wicked in the eyes. Men are bad. But then he breaks out of there, beginning in Romans 3.21, going on to the end of chapter 5. Paul shows us there is only one way. One way to get this righteousness. It's not by being a good person. Because Paul already said there aren't any good persons. It's not by fixing up your life. It's not by counting beads. It's not by confessing your sin to priests. It's not to be found in a Buddhist monastery or hidden in some mysteries of Islam. We are talking about something entirely fundamentally, fundamentally, radically different from all that every other religion out there in the face of this earth promotes. Everyone. This is an incredible message. This, this is really incredible. And you know, people walking up and down the street, somebody just tried to open the door right now. She doesn't know that. What are we talking about, folks? We're talking about justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Being counted righteous in the sight of God through faith in the Son of God. What Paul opens up for us in these chapters, 3 through 5, is the meaning of the work of Jesus Christ. By His life, by His death, by His resurrection, Jesus earned a righteousness for us and became a propitiation for our sins, totally satisfying the wrath of God against me, against the Christian, the believer. He took our sins upon Himself. He who knew no sin became sin. That we might be robed with His righteousness, become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the point. It's all by faith, not by work, effort, labor, or struggle of my own. It's all by grace through faith. By His obedience, the many become righteous. He obeys. I get the credit. It's so free. It is so fundamentally outside of ourselves that you come to six and what do you have? Grace is so abundant. I mean, this is the truth, folks. Grace is so much grace. It is so free. It is so outside of my effort, my toil, my work, my labor, my struggle. It is so much so that Paul anticipates somebody's going to say, if it's all that easy and it's all so glorious and it's all so free, then I can just go on in my sin. And he says, nope, that is not possible. But just hold on. I mean... Is that a legitimate question? Really, it is. Because we ask ourselves, well, where is the motivation for holiness? Where is the motivation for being a good person if it's really all that free? So it's a good question. But listen, do you see by the very nature of the question how absolutely free justification is? You don't ask that question if Paul has just been spending chapter after chapter after chapter saying to us, the way to get right with God is through your own work. It's by striving to be a good person. You don't get to the end of that and ask the question, well, what then should we sin? You don't ask, should I sin? Should I continue in sin? If Paul's all along been saying the way to get to God is by not sinning, but being a good person. You see that? You don't ask the question. The very question comes because it is so radically free. Thank the Lord. If there is none that does good 
and I have no ability, no capacity, no seeking of God, if I am basically dead in my trespasses and sins, there's no more glorious message than this. That God comes along totally outside of me and redeems me. But then you come to Romans 6. Well, he tells us, he tells us basically, can we keep going in sin? Can I, do I continue? By no means. He said, how can you? And the point is, you can't. What, why? Well, okay. So now, what we've entered into is this realm of the book of Romans where chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, is this huge discourse. Now, we have the chapter separations there, but Paul didn't put those in. We have this massive body of truth in these three chapters that tell us why the Christian can't sin. Why? Why he can't? And he can't. This whole section is to answer that twice-asked question. You see it in verse 1 of chapter 6, verse 15 of chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Paul's overriding purpose in this part of the letter is to show that the justified believer always experiences radical inward changes that make a life of sin impossible. Possible. Why? Because union with Jesus Christ couples us with the power of resurrection. That's basically the gist of this whole thing. You are so coupled with Christ that there is a power unleashed in your life that prevents this from happening. And it works itself out various ways. Folks, if you are united to this resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, you will be changed. Because you must be changed. You can't help it. That's the whole point. God will so work in your life, He will make this come to pass. God does not justify somebody and then step away and let them run off to do whatever they want to do. If God justifies the way you can tell they're justified, justification is a legal declaration in heaven. It is a forensic statement of God declaring the sinner righteous. God justifies the ungodly. But how can you tell? That's a legal declaration made in heaven. I can't see it, touch it, feel it, experience it. But what happens is where God justifies, sin cannot continue because something very demonstrable happens in the life of that person. And that's what six is about. Dead to sin. Dead. Sin, you remember this, verse 14? Sin will not have dominion over you. And all the way through to the end of the chapter 6, it is God who is shown to be the reason why sin cannot continue in the life of the Christian. If you guys are there right now, look at Romans 6.17. Thanks be to God. Now why in the world is He thanking God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart? Because that's what God does. If He justifies you, we can thank God because He is making those who were once slaves of sin to become obedient from the heart. God is thanked because it's God that brings us heartfelt obedience. It's not just some external rule keeping. God goes to work in the heart. We can thank God. You go down through the letter, Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin, Listen to that. Having been set free from sin. It's a passive verb. Which means, what? I don't do it. I don't set myself free. Somebody else sets me free. Well, who in the world is setting us free? Well, the God who's thanked. Just back up a few verses. From sin and it becomes slaves. Literally, it's, I have been enslaved of righteousness. Set free, been enslaved. Romans 6.22 says the same thing. Now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves or been enslaved of God. He's the one that does it. He enslaves us 
He frees us. Okay. Paul is pressing home here. This fact. God sets you free from sin and enslaves you to Himself and to righteousness if you've been justified, period. That's a reality. Some people think that the radical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, leads to more and more sin. Not less sin. But Paul is pressing home the reality that there is a certain type of life that goes with being a Christian. There is a certain type of life that goes with being justified. With being right with God. It's a life where the power of God literally envelops a man or a woman or a child so that from the very depths of their heart they obey righteousness. Because He makes you want to obey righteousness. And it's in this way God secures eternal life for the true Christian. The justified do not make peace with sin. They make war on it. God sees to it. So that is the road we have walked thus far through the book of Romans. Was that necessary? Yes. From time to time, I want you to see that flow. You've got the righteousness of God. You've got the wickedness of man who needs the righteousness of God. And then you were shown that this righteousness of God comes through the propitiation of Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection are critical. It's for, you've got it by faith. The faith that Abraham had. In five, you see this thing set up before us of being plugged in, in union, joined to Adam. And in Him all die, but being united now with Christ, you're made alive because His obedience becomes your obedience. And you come into six. Well, if all that's so free and true and rests so much on the work of Christ, why don't I just keep on going in sin? You can't. If you're joined in union with Him, you're joined to His death, you cannot continue in sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. And we thank God because He is the one that broke the slavery in your life. And that brings us to the end. Now we jump into seven. Well, what's, you know what? In six, preeminently, sin was talked about. We're not enslaved to it. We're free from it. Don't let it have dominion. Count yourself dead to it. I mean, sin comes up over and over and over. Now we turn our attention to Romans 7. And what is the theme? What, it, what tends to be that word that comes at us repeatedly, 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 repeatedly? It's the term law. Law. I want to set up a little bit of groundwork as we begin to dive into 7. We're definitely not going to go all the way through it today. But we need to set up groundwork. Because there are some hotly contested matters from Romans 7. And what we want to do is see the flow of the book and watch what Paul is arguing for. I believe so much of the debate isn't even really in line with what the thrust of the letter is and what his specific argument in 7 is all about. I think a lot of times it's lost because people have an agenda when they go to Romans 7 rather than to look at the book as a whole. And so, I'm wanting us to really think. And so, here in 7, we're going to pace ourselves so that we really have a good grip of where the letter is going and why Paul says the things that he says. So, he's still dealing with the same question. Back in 615, he says, are we to continue in sin because we're under law, or under grace, not under law? He's still answering that. He's going to answer it from the standpoint of law now, where he was talking before about God delivering us from the enslavement to sin. But he's still answering that. Why can't we continue in sin? Well, here he goes with it. And remember, there, this division here is man-made. Paul didn't create this thing. Somebody else threw it in later. Now, something happened in Romans 6. Listen to this. You'll remember this. Sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, 
but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. You see what Paul did? Almost in passing, he throws out the term law. Not under law. But he doesn't give us any explanation, any elaboration as to what he meant by that. Because he was on kind of another agenda right there to show that our slavery with sin was broken. But in the back of his mind, he's realizing, I just said something that in a few verses, I'm going to have to get back to because there may be some misunderstanding about that. That seems to be what's happening here. Paul is returning to this concept of law and he wants us to understand in chapter 7, the term law comes at us 23 times. So you know that's his emphasis here. He definitely has something to say to us about the law and how it relates to man. But before we dive specifically into the text, I want to establish this one point of groundwork first. What does Paul mean by law? You know, we're going to talk about not being under the law or being dead to the law or whatever. What do we mean by law? Simply put, a law is a rule of conduct. It either requires or forbids certain behavior or actions. Now, men can make laws. We have many laws in our land. But in the Bible, we're primarily concerned about the laws that God has ordained. In which case, the law could be defined as a revelation of the will of God concerning man's behavior in life. But I want you guys to notice something. Paul doesn't just speak about a law or some laws. But how very often does his language come at us? The law. The law. Well, Paul, what do you mean by that? It seems he has something very specific in mind here. Paul refers to the law no less than 64 times in the book of Romans. So we ought to be able to figure out something about what he intends to convey just by looking in this book. Well, the first place I want you to turn is Romans 2. So I want you to see this. I want you guys to be convinced in your hearts and your minds about what the law is referring to. And there's a lot of places in the book of Romans we could go, but for the sake of time, we're just going to hit on a couple. Romans 2, verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, why? I mean, here they're, they're an instructor of foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others. Now, what is it they're teaching others? Well, it's the law. It's the embodiment of knowledge and truth. It's, they're trying to be a guide to the blind. Because they rely on the law. They approve this excellent law. They're instructed by the law. And so they seek to guide the blind and the foolish and children through this law. Well, what are they teaching? Well, you then who teach others, verse 21, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, eighth commandment, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols. Second commandment. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. I, want you, I hope you guys can see just from that text. When Paul's talking about the law, he's got in mind the Ten Commandments. I hope that's clear. If it's not yet, look at Romans 7, back to where we are. And verse 7. 
Now this, this text is especially relevant because it's right in the context of where we're at right now. If it had not been for the law, verse 7, I would not have known sin. I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Tenth commandment. You see, he's clearly referring to the Ten Commandments when he talks about the law. One more time. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. You'll see this, this idea again. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, seventh commandment, you shall not murder, sixth commandment, you shall not steal, eighth commandment, you shall not covet, tenth commandment, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Again, clearly the ten commandments are the idea here. I want you guys to hold this thought. When Paul talks about the law in Romans 6 and 7, he is specifically talking about the Mosaic law. That law which was given to Moses. And very specifically, the Ten Commandments seem to be upon his mind. So, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He may mean more than that when he says law, but at least... He means that. Right? I mean, he, the Mosaic Law is bigger than the Ten Commandments. But we know he's at least talking about that. At least he is. Because he refers to it directly. Okay. You guys have that nailed down. Why? Why is this so important? Because we're not under the Ten Commandments. That's the point. When he says you're not under the law, he means you're not under do not covet. Do not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those commandments written in stone, I'm not under them anymore, folks. That's the point. And we'll look at a little bit more about what that means, but I want you to realize the Ten Commandments is what I'm not under anymore. I'm not under law. I want to show you the similarity now between what we saw in 6 and what you see here in 7. Here in 7, the law is issued. There in 6, sin is the issue. Now notice the parallels. First, dead to sin, dead to law. In Romans 6.2, you're said to be dead to sin. Romans 6.11, consider yourself dead to sin. Now in Romans 7, in verse 4, you also have died to to the law. Christian, you aren't just dead to sin. You are dead to the law. And taking the law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. Folks, I'm going to use language that a lot of people would wince at, but this means you are dead to the Ten Commandments. Well, I know people don't like to talk that way in some circles, but it's true. You are dead to them if you are a child of God. So that's the first thing. In six, you're dead to sin. In seven, you're dead to the law. The other thing here, the second thing, sin's dominion is broken, the law's dominion is broken. You can see that. Romans 6, the believer has died to sin in such a manner that he is freed from it so that it no longer rules, reigns, enslaves, or has dominion. That's exactly what 6.14 says. Sin will have no dominion. Likewise, in Romans 7.6, read with me. Look at Romans 7.6 in your Bibles. Now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive. The believer has been put to death to the law in such a fashion as to be freed from it so that it no longer rules. Sin will have no dominion. Chapter 6. The law no longer holds us captive. Chapter 7. See those parallels? And the last one is, in 6, why are we freed from sin? To serve righteousness. Again, in seven, 
What does it say there? In 7.4, we are dead to the law in order that we may bear fruit for God. Being a slave of righteousness is the same as being one who bears fruit for God. Just different ways of expressing the same thing. Why do I draw out these parallels for you? Simply to show you that it is not only critical to your salvation that you escape the power and dominion of sin, but that you escape the power and dominion of the law. Sinner. Which we all were, and we could all go by that name. I don't own it anymore. I'm not in that classification. But I was. But I'll tell you this, if you're outside of Christ, that describes you. You're a sinner. And sinner, what's true of you is that the law is not your friend. It is not. Because if you are under it, it's going to kill you. You'll see that. So, as I wrap up this message, I want to hit on the lost man and the saved man. The lost man. The law and the lost man. Let's think about that. To get some grasp of why we need deliverance from the law, I want to show you the picture of one who is under the law. I'm talking about the lost person. Paul says that Christians... Now listen. Paul says Christians are not under law, but under grace. Now you see, there's only two possible categories there. Either under law or under grace. See the law of grace. So he's clearly implying that before someone is saved and comes under grace, by default they must belong to the other category, namely being under the law. So what does it look like when someone is lost and under the law? Chapter 7, verse 5 gives us the picture. So point your eyes down there to verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. There you have it. The lost man. This is the man living in the flesh. In chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says, those in the flesh cannot please God. So, I mean, here you have the man lost, dead in sin, living in the flesh, no ability to please God. He's bearing fruit for death. In other words, the man in this condition is heading for eternal spiritual death and the fruits of his life show that it is so. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, Paul says in 8.13. This is the hellbound lost man to be sure. Now let's note a few things about this guy. Look at him in Romans 7.5. First thing I want you to notice about the lost man is that the law arouses sinful passions. Now catch this. I mean, really get a grip on this. As to what Paul's saying here. What is it that arouses or stimulates or stirs up wicked passions in a lost man? What is it? It's the law. That's what it says. It's, remember how we define law. It's the Ten Commandments, folks. The Ten Commandments meets unredeemed flesh without the Spirit. And what's the result? Holiness? Righteousness? A good code of ethics where they can go out and now become like God? Become like Christ? No! What Paul says is take Ten Commandments, join it with unredeemed flesh, and what you get is the stirring and stimulation and arousal of sinful passions. Not the diminishing of it. It's not like the Ten Commandments posted. You know, we got people all over the place. Well, we need to have the Ten Commandments in the school. I'm not against that. We need to have the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. But I'm telling you, it's not like you go into those schools, put the Ten Commandments on the walls, and all the children are going to be saved. What that law does is it arouses sin. Now when the children look up there and where they weren't, didn't think about stealing before, 
They say thou shalt not steal. Oh, I better go do it. That's what happens in the heart of unredeemed flesh, folks. That's exactly what he's saying. It stirs sinful passions. How can that be? How can this be? I mean, think with me. When you take those Ten Commandments and you let's put them all in a pan and boil them down, what do you get? What did Jesus Christ say you got when you boiled all the law down and the prophets? Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that not what He said? When you boil those commandments down, we just read Romans chapter 13. What did it say there? The fulfilling of the law is what love is. Is that not right? And so basically, you have a list of commandments that is, is demanding our love. But you know what? When you cross that with a lost man, you don't get love. You get sin. You get rebellion. You get wickedness. You do not get love. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's what it says. You guys, the law, the law actually becomes in conjunction with sin, as a partner with sin, the law actually becomes an instrument of defeating its own demands. The law demands love. But when, you, when it meets a lost man in the flesh, it doesn't produce love. It produces the opposite. It produces hatred to others and hatred to God. That's exactly what happens. The law stirs up in people exactly the opposite of what it calls for. Now you can't, don't miss this. Because we want, as Christians, there's a lot said about law. We've got lots of people writing books on law. But we need to understand not what all those people writing books have to say. What does the inspired apostle have to say? And what he says is this. The law, if you post it up in the schools, doesn't just reveal sin. It provokes sin. It does reveal sin. But it does more. It actually provokes it. It stirs it. It becomes an instrument to multiply the very sins that the law itself condemns. Now, folks, we find in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills. Law and sin partner up to kill people. That's what happens. Why? Because law and sin become partners to ruin our lives by stirring up sinful lusts that end up in bearing fruit for death. But the law comes together and meets the flesh and sin and it teams up. It kills me. Why? Because it provokes me to do the very works that God is going to kill me for. And damn my soul for. You see, the law is not your friend. In that sense. See the typical Jewish view in Paul's day? What did they think about the law? The law helped, they believed, prevent people from sinning. The Jewish opponents of Paul's gospel contended that freedom from the law would only open the door for sin. And that's what a lot of people want to say today. They want to say, well, you've got to have the law because it curtails sin. You know, it puts boundaries. It doesn't do that. Paul actually flips this thing right over on its head by insisting that it is those who are under the law who are actually the ones who are in bondage to sin. You know, the Jews, they never found freedom. Never. Under the law, only those who have died with Christ to the law and possess the Holy Spirit have the ability to actually go on and bear fruit for God. Those who are under the law cannot yield good fruit will ultimately have death pronounced upon them. You see, folks, the deepest problem with man who is in the flesh, the problem with us before our conversion is not just that we break 
specific laws. The bigger problem, as, as 8 7 says, is that we're, if we're in the flesh, we're hostile to God, not willing to submit to God's law. Indeed, we cannot. That's what it says. The issue is we have an aversion to be told what to do. That's a reality. And I know I've said this before, but, you know, all I have to do is say, children, whatever you do, do not look inside that book. And, and one of them will look in there. Or five of them. Why? Because rules... Here's the problem with us. The unredeemed flesh cannot concede to God because ultimately what is true about that flesh is that we will not be ruled by another. We will not be told what to do. As long as I had it in my own power not to go over and look at that book, it was okay not to do it. As long as I was working by my own will and my own desires not to do it, I was okay with not doing it. But as soon as I'm told you're forbidden from doing it, now all of a sudden I say, you know what? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go over and look in that book. Now, we may not say it exactly in those words, but that's what's going on in here. That's what happens. Paul said, I didn't know covetousness. Until the law said, don't covet. And then it was like, ah, I can't. I had, he coveted everywhere. It just stirred it up. It became bigger and deeper. Well, bottom line is, folks, the real problem is we hate God. You know why we hate God? We hate God because we want to be in control. And when the true God comes along, He likes to squash our little self-deification there. He likes to tell us, I have commandments. And commandments mean authority. And we don't want to be under... We will not have this man to rule over us. That's our attitude. We will not be told what to do. We are going to call the shot. We are going to do this thing. And we're not going to submit ourselves to this. You see, that's, that's why the law basically can never help. But, for the liberation, for the justified man, brethren, this is the condition of us that are saved. And it is radically different. Verses 4 and 6 specifically describe this glorious state of the man who is justified and how he now relates to the law. Listen to this, Christian. Drink this truth in because it applies to you. As I read these two verses, take this personally if you're a child of God. Likewise, my brothers, that's you Christians, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. But now we are released from, this is verse 6 now, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Christian, you can boldly say, I am dead to sin. And you can just as boldly say, I am dead to the law. If you are in Christ, you are dead to it. That's a good thing. Say it, brethren. Say it to yourselves. I am dead to the law. Say it right now. If you're a Christian, say, I am dead to the law. And you are. That's a fact. But you know what? If you don't know what that means exactly, it probably isn't as glorious to you as it ought to be. So what does that mean? How does it help me to not be under law anymore? Well, let's consider, consider a couple points here. Several points. First, being dead to the law means you are released from the law. Look at that. 
Right there in verse 6. Do you see that? Do you see in verse 6 that it says, we are released from the law. Now, how do you get released from the law? Not just by saying, pretty please. Not just because I decide that maybe I want to or it's a good thing. I'll tell you this. You're not released from the law because the law is put to death. You are released from the law because you are put to death. That's important, folks, because what I mean to say by that is we do not destroy the law by being released from it. That doesn't happen. We're not saved by laying aside the law. We're not saved by trimming the law. We're not saved by cutting the law down. We are saved by the entire absolute perfect satisfaction of the law. Nobody ever gets released from the law unless they satisfy the law. You don't rip it apart, destroy it, or, or push it down somehow to get away from it and get freedom. You satisfy it. That's how we die to the law. It will only release us if it is satisfied. What does it take to satisfy the law? What are the requirements of the law? Do this and live. That's the requirement of the law. Fail to do this and die. You are under a curse. What does it take? Perfect obedience and perfect payment for any violation of it. That's what it... That's what it we die to the law, verse 4 says, through the body of Christ. In that body, Christ obeyed this law perfectly in that body, Christ paid the law's condemnation perfectly. That's how I die. My release from the law comes only by way of the body of Christ. Second thing, being dead to the law means you now belong to another. Look at verse 4. It says you have died to the law so that you may belong to another. This is what the illustration of first three verses is all about. Death frees a married woman so she can marry another. The same is true of us. When death comes, we die to the old husband law and now belong, or as the NAS says, joined. Or as the KJV says, married. We die to the law that we might be married or joined to another. You see there in verse 4, it says He was risen from the dead. I am not joined to a dead man. I am joined to the ever-living Christ. Now listen! This is the issue. The old law demanded love. It said, when you boil it all down, love your neighbor as yourself. But I'm not under it anymore. And all it did was provoke me to more sin. And the Jews, they thought, no, you've got, and a lot of people today believe this. Oh, you've got to have the law if you're going to you know, curtail sin. Paul says, no. What you need to do is be freed from that, which all it does is stir up more sin, and be united, married, joined, belong to the living Christ, who is incarnate expression of love. This is no list of rules. This is no list of Ten Commandments you're joined to. This is Christ. You actually become joined to Him. No external list of duties. This is a spiritual union to Him. He's the sin-conquering, law-satisfying One. Now, let that point just come home to you. You say, well, how is it that I don't just run off into more and more sin if I don't have the law? 
folks, it's because I become joined to the Christ for the purpose of bringing forth fruit to God. I come joined to Christ. He causes His Spirit to indwell me. And now, before I had an external law pressing upon me for obedience to something I had no will, no desire to do. Now, going to Christ, His Spirit's inside me. And now my heart is given a desire, a willingness to comply to those standards and to imitate the very husband that I'm married to. Do you see the difference? Do you see the glory of the difference between that life of legalism where you, you know the people. You know, they do what they do not because they like to do it, but because they're afraid of hell and they believe they have to live up to some code of morality if in the end they're going to be received by God. But all that is is works type salvation. That's all that is. We don't obey something, some set of rules because we have no desire to do it. This is a burden to us. We'd rather not obey it, but because we don't want to get our hair singed in hell, we believe we have to. That's not the issue. Here is this law that pressed upon me externally before with these commandments, which was a weight, and I bore under the burden, and I could never keep it. Because I didn't want to keep it. I couldn't comply because I cannot comply. Because my, my very mind is in the flesh. I'm hostile to God. I cannot please Him. I cannot. I don't want to. And this law presses upon me. And if I'm afraid enough of the consequences, if I'm afraid of how I'll appear to others, and for pride's sake, or I'm afraid of hell, I might get myself to comply to some degree. We have reasons as lost people why we might be moral to a certain degree. But it's for selfish, self-serving reasons only. And now, I die to that. I'm wondrously united to Christ. And now, I'm united to that very living, risen, express, incarnate expression of deity, of the Father, of His compassion, of love. I'm united to Him. His Spirit put within me. I don't serve anymore under that old letter. The old letter of the law. The letter that kills. I'm not under those Ten Commandments, folks. I am not. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, is there a place for the law in the life of the child of God? I'll tell you in 2 Corinthians 3, where you have some of these expressions about the letter and compared to the life and the Spirit, some, some verbiage there that speaks about the new covenant. I'll tell you how it ends. It ends this way. How do you become more of the same living picture of Jesus Christ who kept the law perfectly? How do you become that? Not by forever and always gazing at the Ten Commandments. That is not the way. In the very last verse of 2 Corinthians 3, the way you become more like Christ is by gazing on Christ, not on the law. You know, Christ would say to His very disciples on the road to Emmaus, He'd bring out the law. And He taught them about Himself. The Jews, they were all taken up with the law. He said, you know, you guys go to that and in there you think you find life, but they speak of Me. Do you know what you find? you know what you should do with the law? When you take the law, you should find in it the perfections of Christ. The law by itself leads to bondage. The law by itself kills. Christian, that is not where your spiritual welfare is found. I don't have a problem if you want to teach your children the Ten Commandments. But I'll tell you this, and I've been someplace before where I've heard the commandments preached with hardly the name of Christ mentioned in it. And you know what? That is death. That is not life. That is not healthy. What do we do with the law? 
Well, I'll tell you this. As a Christian, I'm dead to it. I'm freed from it. It no longer holds me in its bondage. It's released me by the body of Christ. I'm separated from it. I can never go back again. What do I do with the law? When I behold the law, I need to see in that the face of the glorious Christ carrying out every one of them to the perfection. And if we don't see that, if we simply study these laws aside from Christ, they will not bring sanctification in your life. I'll guarantee it. Why? Because the Spirit of God is not in the business of using the law to sanctify His people. He's in the business of using the image of Christ to sanctify His people. We are joined to Christ, not to the law. Yes, I know we establish the law. I know we're not free of commandments. I know that's the case. But what God does is through His Spirit, He writes those laws on our hearts. He gives us a willingness, a compulsion to do what's right and to keep those laws. And that compulsion will only grow and be enlarged and find expansion not by studying the Ten Commandments but by spending time with Christ and beholding His image. And as we do, one degree of glory to another, I am transformed into that image. This is Scripture, folks. It doesn't matter what the Puritans said. This is God speaking. The Puritans said, the law led us to Christ. Christ led us to the law. That's heresy. And I can say that about the Puritans. They had a lot of good things to say. But that is false. Christ leads us to Christ. Always. The Spirit leads us to Christ. Nowhere else. He is your Savior. He is your hope. He is your all. It's in Him. If you will be sanctified and become like Him, it will be in Him, gazing on Him, being with Him, meditating on Him, spending time in discourse with Him, praying to Him, walking with Him. Do you want to escape the bondage and the power of the sin in your life and grow beyond it and conquer? This is it. It comes by communion. Union with a person. This is Scripture, folks. This is the truth. I don't think you can argue it. I don't think you can. And remember this, Christian. You still have remnants of that flesh. Right there inside you. And the law still does to the flesh what it shows to do in verse 5. It still accomplishes the same thing. Don't run to the law. Parents, you want to teach your children the catechism? You want to teach your children things? The Ten Commandments show sin. And sometimes, you know, in an evangelistic sense, we can use that law to show people that they don't meet the standard. But we always have to show them Christ. He ultimately is the standard. He kept that law. I'm free from it. No longer. I'm not under it. Totally satisfied. I'm going to walk out that door today and I'm not under law. And some of you are going to walk out that door today and you are under law. And I hope you realize it is a fearful place to be because that law works in you. Works that will lead to your death. And you know the things you're doing in your life right now are the things that the law forbids. You have broken it. The law demands your perfect compliance. And you know you've riddled that law with your transgressions. And you are under its curse. Can I tell you something? 
There's cemeteries down the street right here. Lots of them. You know why all those people are out there buried in the ground? Because they were under law. Now, and I realize that some of them may have been delivered from it, but the wages of sin is death. You go down there and you look in those fields and you'll see tombstone after tombstone. You know what that is an indication of and a testimony to? Men and women who broke the law. I trust some of them found deliverance the same way Paul did and the same way he describes right here. Well, I know I'm, I, I thank you for bearing with me. I knew this was long. When my notes are five pages, I know it's going to be long. When they're three to four, I know you guys are sitting in a good place. But I couldn't, I, I, I didn't want to make this two messages and I just felt like I wanted to battle through it today, so I appreciate your attentiveness. Father, it's, it's glorious. We have been released. We are, we are dead to that which held us captive. That we might serve in that liberty and freedom and life of the Spirit. Dead to Christ. Dead to the law by the body of Christ that we might belong to another, be joined, married to that one so that we can bring forth the offspring, the children, which is a good work. Fruits for God. Lord, may there be much fruit Lord, I pray that somehow by our death to sin, our death to the law, that this, this church would just be freed to bring forth fruit for Your namesake and to serve in the newness of the Spirit. Lord, we know that that is a powerful place to be in. Show us, Lord, by the very expressions of the power of the Spirit that these things are so in our lives. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.